0: knowledge of war and espionage a quote from Wilhelm J.C.E. Stiever, Spion des Cancellors Munich 1981 instead in May 1869 he sent his confidant Theo von Bernardi to Madrid a historian and national economist whom under the mask of the scientist, Bismarck and Moltke had already often used for secret missions. However, such emissaries required the greatest capacities in observation, knowledge of people, combination, dissimulation, indeed a general cunning and artfulness. For every warlord the questions are, what is the enemy doing? What is he planning? What condition is he in? How can it be found out? Direct communication is not possible. To ask the enemy himself is ultimately impossible, or at least pointless, since he will always simply give deceptive answers. For this reason an outstanding intelligence service is required, whose chief is an extraordinarily intelligent man, but not necessarily a fighter, He should be able to think clearly in order to separate what is essential from the mass of the accidental that is always present where the problems of the opponent are concerned in the case of enmity the probability indeed the certainty of being deceived is a priori a given the enemy will pretend to be stronger or weaker than he really is so as to provoke or deter he will take up illusory positions and suddenly attack from an unexpected side It is thus part of the logic of survival of each side in a dyad of opponents to see through and circumvent the deceptive manoeuvres of the opponent through enlightenment in the sense of espionage and to outdo him with one's own exposures, counter-deceptions and operative measures. Espionage, (coughs) espionage, in its most immediate form, is set up as a science of survival. What the polemical realism of enlightenment wants can be seen most clearly through its example. Enlightenment as espionage is research on the enemy, the accumulation of knowledge about an object to which I am bound, not through well-wishing or through disinterested neutrality, but through a direct hostile tension with a threatening effect. It nourishes a special kind of wanting to know and necessitates a series of peculiarly indirect methods of research, dissimulation secrecy infiltration of positions of trust misuse of friendships espionage exercises the art of getting the other to talk works through surveillance and searches spies on others intimate and private domains seeks levers for extortion looks for vulnerable points and the weak link in the opponent's chain it banks on the readiness of individuals on the other side to betray it it belongs to the methodology of espionage. The spy, the subject of knowledge, comes forth in a mask vis a vis a hostile reality, that is, the reality of the enemy. We see at once how the approach of enlightenment as espionage to truth is distinct from that of science, and even more so from that of philosophy, for the truths that the spy brings together are, from the start, subject to a passionate and special interest. Wars of power, wars of consciousness, the migration of knowledge from subject A to subject B is already part of a struggle, or an arming. Accordingly, this amoral direction of research appeals openly to martial law and situation ethics, which says that whatever serves self-preservation is allowed. For this knowledge, the grand gesture of disinterestedness and contemplative objectivity, which science is particularly fond of, does not come into question. The spy seems to stand closer to the man of war than to the philosopher or the researcher. When he wants to know something, the disinterestedness he presents to the world is in every case only an illusion. The cases in which it is otherwise with researchers and philosophers remain to be examined. But what attitude do the warrior and the philosopher assume toward the spy? Most of the time, they have contemptfully chastised him, and with good reason, as the spy's research work violates the ethical norms of the metier on both sides. <coughs> Excuse me. On the one side, it is the generals who, in going about their heroic, upright, manly, brave business, never like having to deal with people who, because of their profession, do not really care about all that stuff. For the spy, another morality always holds. Though he fights the same fight, the hero does not want a corrupt spy as a fellow fighter. That would make him feel soiled. Strategy and tactics, which are certainly also familiar with deceptions and ruses, belong ambivalently to the heroic masculine side. The spy, by contrast, appears merely as cunning and sly in the low sense of these words. He seduces. He does not carry out frontal breakthroughs. Napoleon was at least honest enough to confess that behind some of his great victories stood not only his military genius, but also the diplomatic art of deception of his master spy, Karl Schulmeister. He contributed decidedly to the hoodwinking of the Austrians, which led to their defeats at Ulm and Austerlitz. It is said that General von Moltke, Bismarck's veteran fighter, did not like spies in general, and particularly not that Wilhelm Stieber who from 1863 on was Bismarck's chief spy. His nickname was Most Superior Security Superior, Orbister Zickerheitz Orbere, and who, under the cover of a news service, that is a kind of press agency, built up the international network of the Prussian secret police. If one reads Steber's recently published memoirs, one can estimate the significance of modern intelligence networks for real politics. Not only did Stieber repeatedly save Bismarck and Kaiser Wilhelm I from assassination, but in organising the intelligence work on the Austrian army, according to the new principles, he laid the groundwork for the Prussian campaign against Austria in the Fraternal War of 1866. It was also his duty to organise the intelligence prerequisites and the reconnaissance of the terrain on which the German campaign against France in 1870-71 was to take place. Nevertheless, the more distinctions he reaped through the extraordinarily successful activity, the more he was snubbed by the Prussian officer caste. The heroes could not bear that their naive, mark, soldier's ethos should have anything to do with the systematic amoralism of the chief spy. The higher the office, the greater the compulsions to lie. One acted as if one were blind to Machiavelli's realism. Quoting Discourse, Book 3, page 40. In war, fraud is laudable. Scientists and philosophers who do not deign to look on the spy and the phenomenon of espionage, however, proceed in a way that is scarcely any different. For dirt sticks to the spy's hands, namely an all-too-clear, all-too-special, small interest. The higher seekers of truth, by contrast, do everything to avoid resembling the spy. They would rather admit to no self-interest at all and not put themselves as tools at the disposal of any aim if the true philosopher had contempt even for the paid academic see schiller's lecture on the study of universal history then the spy was really beneath all criticism but how would it be if the spy proved to be in reality the shadow and obscure double of the enlightenment philosopher well, on the surface of course one can hardly think of an opposition greater than that between the spy who, being quite interest-oriented, commits himself to a particular party, nation, a mere fraction of humanity, and the investigator of truth, who, only, who looks only at the whole, and claims to serve only the universal well-being of humanity, or even pure truth itself. Not until this century did science and philosophy of enlightenment become conscious of their own limited biases, and narrower, polemical, and pragmatic commitments. In the age of class struggles at the end of the 19th century, the keeper of the seal of high knowledge had to feel the ground shake under their feet for the first time. A nasty suspicion arose that they, the bourgeois scientists, might be agents of bourgeois class domination, deluded helpers of a political system who naively, idealistically uncovered quote-unquote universal truths that, when applied, however, served only or for the main, the particular interests of the ruling classes. When in August 1914 the First World War broke out, many professional seekers of truth dropped their masks. The wave of ideas of 1914 tore them along and found them more than willing to consciously take over the role of ideologue, of spiritual weaponsmith in the slaughter of the peoples. What was committed to paper as theory in the years 1914-18 to remains unimaginable, the extent to which culturally chauvinistic nationalisation of quote-unquote pure truths suddenly became possible. In subsequent decades, the sciences as a whole have largely lost their passion for truth. Moreover, they have to live under constant suspicion of being agents a suspicion that was and is determined to unmask them as helpers of the powerful. Since then, associations that place the spy and the philosopher, the secret agent, and the researcher side by side no longer seem so misguided. At the same time, the military became de-theorized. The consciousness of researchers began to become more pragmatic. Knowledge and interest were allowed to, indeed should, have something to do with each other with the proviso that the interests take it on themselves to prove their legitimacy. Nietzsche had begun to undermine every will to know through the suspicion of the will to power. Students of the First World War cannot fail to notice the acknowledged role espionage and martial enlightenment played. Cognitive warfare, psychological warfare, treason, propaganda. General Moshe Dayan finally declared, both open-heartedly and secretively after the Israeli-Arab Six-Day War, that intelligence services had played just as important a role as the Air Force and tank divisions. The taboo seems to be broken. It is no different with countless scientists all over the world who obviously, without professional ethical scruples, work on weapon research and projects with the potential for annihilation. If science, too, has to earn its daily bread, then at least a part of it discovers the coming war as employer. Military enlightenment as provocation to philosophical enlightenment. What is the situation with the subjection of knowledge to interests, and how universal, how particular do those interests have to be? In every gathering of truths, knowledges and insights bound to polemical, defensive, aggressive subjects, here states, certainly espionage is the furthest from the illusion of universal interest. It therefore emphatically puts its knowledge under lock and key. Scientists, by contrast, are categorically publication crazy, and some meta-theories even construct a fundamental connection between universality, truth, and the publicness of assertions. Whereas science boasts of universality, the secret services know that knowledge has value only as long as others do not know that they know it. From this vantage point, a connection between the theory of knowledge and the intelligence service can be seen. Both devise postures of objectivity toward the object of knowledge, postures that would remain incomprehensible without the influence of the hostile stance towards the object. Both are set on separating the obvious from the concealed. Both worry about error and delusion that can lie in wait everywhere. In both, deception is a rival of suspicion. To have an enemy thus means to define an object of research. The converse of the sentence holds only with qualifications. War channels curiosity into a polemical course and equates what is unknown about the enemy with his dangerousness. To know him is half the job of holding him in check. Out of enmity, specialized domains of curiosity, areas of research and epistemic interests are built up. Through the keyhole to the naked facts. Without making enemies and a corresponding concealment, there is no unmasking. Without darkening, there is no naked truth. The striving of enlightenment to reveal the truth obeys a dialectical principle. Only through a specific, polemically forced concealment does a space, quote-unquote, behind arise. The naked facts. What is naked is what was previously secret. The enemy eavesdropped on in his privacy. The hidden power here. The conspiracy there. The naked woman. The genitals made visible. The confessions of the amoral. The true intentions, the real motives, the hard statistics, the relentless standards. Those who enlighten do not rely on what people say. The naked facts will probably always be different from what people say. The enemy is everywhere. Powers of nature that are too powerful, too dangerous for us to rely on. Rivals who, when it comes to the crunch, will show no mercy, and who already envision us as corpses over whom they, determined to survive, will walk if necessary. Traditions that fog up our minds and cause us to believe, but forbid us to know what the case really is. If secretiveness is a striking characteristic in the theory of knowledge of the intelligence services, then here, a bifurcation of enlightenment into naive and reflected, gullible and artful directions becomes clear. The naive assume that they are a priori nobody's enemy, and would let nothing force them to become someone's enemy. When enlighteners of this type quote-unquote know something, they automatically think that everyone else should also be allowed to know it. More more reflective forms of enlightenment, e.g. the earlier Freemasons, from the start understood themselves in this regard differently. They accepted the facts of the, even though always only relative, enmity, and consciously reckoned with the compulsion to be secretive. They accepted the need to think in the logic of struggle during unavoidable conflict. They knew that knowledge was to be treated as a weapon, preferably as a secret weapon. The other side does not have to know what we know. With the spy, this becomes most striking. To gain knowledge without letting it be known that one knows hence also the fascinating romanesque masquerades and espionage agents are trained to see without being seen to recognize without being recognized stieber was not only a sly organizer but also an actor with talent who even visited karl marx in his london exile and played successfully it seems the comic role of a doctor who due to his revolutionary convictions, had had to flee Germany. Stieber noted smugly in his memoirs that her Marx did not waste a word inquiring about his revolutionary vicissitudes and the situation in Germany, but only asked Dr. Schmidt about a prescription for haemorrhoids. Stieber was occasionally also appeared at scenes of unrest as a landscape painter, he is even supposed to have turned up as a street vendor who carried devotional knick-knacks and pornographic postcards on his cart. One of the two could always be used to lure soldiers into confidential conversations. We have also heard how Steva's descendants do it today in the socialist Prussian secret police, in psychological Casanova courses. East German agents are said to study the art of curing the weekend neuroses of top Bonn secretaries so tenderly that even the East Berlin State Security Service profits from it. (coughs) Are we preaching to the converted? The German public must long since be well aware of the connections between science and espionage, at least since a model concept of the secret services has permeated into general consciousness. Those pieces of information collected by legal and illegal means, which are at hand against a group or a person, are called intimations, irkentness. Suspicion guides the storing up of intimations. It constitutes the prosecution procedure. What mistrust ferrets out lies at hand as intimations when the time comes to take measures. This is no semantic lapse. No conceptual contingency. In a broader sense, this way of speaking about intimations is only one of several exposures of the primary connection between knowledge and polemical interest. The English language uses at this point the compact word intelligence. One understands by it particularly the gathering, assessment and handing on of publicly accessible or secret pieces of information in special bureaus, agencies or services for the purposes of the military and political leadership general staff and government the naked facts ferreted out by intelligence build the first solid layer of a cynical empiricism empire empire they must be naked because they are supposed to help keep the subject (coughs) excuse me they must be naked because they are supposed to help keep the object and its dangerous enmity in its sights The subjects must thus dissemble in order to eavesdrop on the naked objects. Dissimulation of the subject is the common denominator of espionage and modern philosophy. Dissimulation of the subject is the common denominator of espionage and modern philosophy.